1: Rate with service on The Visible Plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
2: World history is permanently altered by this episode. I don't think you can have an episode of this magnitude and not have implications that are going to be potentially quite profound that we don't fully understand yet.
3: Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. The biggest question right now is what comes after social distancing. There is no national plan. We are in a period of enormous sacrifice economically, socially, personally, and there's no national plan for using that time well. People are doing things, states are doing things, cities are doing things, but there's not actually been an articulated strategy for what comes next. So I think it's really important to look at the people who are trying to articulate those strategies and try to get a realistic understanding of what is the path here? Like what, even if we do all this right, what does right look like? One of the people trying to figure that out is Scott Gottlieb. He is the former FDA commissioner. He's Donald Trump's first FDA commissioner. And he was a very rare Trump appointee in that he won quite a lot of plaudits from people on both the left and the right. Um, after working uh, in the Trump administration, he went back to the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative-leading think tank, where he's really been one of the key voices on coronavirus, particularly on the right, particularly of people on the right with some real expertise here, trying to get this taken seriously, trying to think about it in a systematic way. And he's one of the lead authors on a plan now for reopening the economy. So we talk about that plan here. We talk about sort of the coronavirus response in general. And one thing that I think is worth keeping in mind, and if you go to Vox, and we'll put this in the show notes, you can see a big piece I've written on the various plans to reopen the economy and the way they're actually kind of scary. But you'll hear that here too. There's not a snapback to normalcy here. We're not imagining even if everything goes well that in two months or three months or four months we're back to something we will recognize economically socially as normal and that's particularly true for more vulnerable populations which is part of why i think it's so important that we're actually talking about these plans interrogating them and trying to understand what they mean for us and are they the path we want to take as always my email is Ezra recline show at vox.com Ezra Kleinshow at vox.com. here is scott gottlieb scott gottlieb welcome to the podcast uh, thanks for having me I wanted to start here. In 2019, the Global Health Security Index gave the U.S. the world's highest score, highest score in the world on pandemic readiness. So in terms of our capabilities, we were ahead of countries like Germany and South Korea, Singapore and Taiwan. And then when the pandemic hit, it doesn't seem like we were able to fully maximize that. What do you think is responsible for that gap between our capabilities and our response?
2: You know, for years, we we were preparing for a pandemic uh, and we were focused mostly on flu. And so there were some things that were different about a coronavirus where some of the planning that we had undertaken, I think, wasn't as applicable. For example, we envisioned the ability to scale up vaccines against a pandemic flu strain in ways that just we couldn't do in the setting of a coronavirus. But I think in many respects, the kind of planning that we did and, and the preparations that we thought we had weren't as robust as what we believed. The most visible example of that is the stockpile. Uh, We had been stockpiling equipment in anticipation of a potential pandemic for years, but clearly we didn't have enough ventilators. We didn't have enough personal protective equipment for frontline healthcare workers and masks. And the other thing is we never thought to stockpile things like testing equipment or reagents that would be used to try to roll out very broad diagnostic testing capabilities. And so there were certain things that despite all the planning that we had done over a very long period of time, and I was there back in 2005 when a lot of this began, when there was a real focus on pandemic planning and anticipation of the risk of a bird flu, a lot of that planning either eroded over the years or more likely just wasn't robust enough to deal with something that was this novel on this scale, this really is a once-in-a-generation pathogen. And in many ways, I think it evades some of the you know, planning that we did and some of the anticipation that we had.
3: What are some of the ways it evades that? Because uh, when you call it a once-in-a-generation pathogen, I, I think it's worth talking about how that's true. Um, we've been reporting on this at Vox for, for some months. And when I go back and look at some of those early stories... Uh, Even epidemiologists we were talking to often didn't see how bad this was going to get. That meant often we didn't see how bad this was going to get. Even Dr. Fauci uh, was downplaying some of the threat as late as early February. So in the public health community, among people who understand infectious diseases, what got missed originally and what do we need to learn from those misses for next time?
2: I think in some ways, this pathogen occupies that sort of sweet spot between being virulent enough, being deadly enough that it can cause a lot of death and disease being severe enough, and also being contagious enough that it can race around the world. A lot of pathogens that we've seen in recent years, SARS and MERS, were very deadly, but um, they weren't very transmissible. They didn't didn't transmit human-to-human in efficient ways. And also they were so deadly that they incapacitated their hosts and they made themselves self-evident. If you had a SARS outbreak in your city, you knew you had a SARS outbreak. This pathogen, because of the asymptomatic spread, because of the large number of people that become only mildly symptomatic, has the potential to spread very efficiently. And in fact, it's very contagious. And so we know a lot of people can get infected from any one individual. But it's still, there's still a cohort of people that's sizable enough that develop severe disease and could succumb to it that it can cause an extreme amount of morbidity and mortality and really incapacitate a healthcare system and cause mass casualties. And so in many respects, I think it was that pathogen that we long feared that occupied that that perfect middle ground between transmissibility, ease of transmission and virulence, um, the ability to cause a lot of death and disease.
3: So before we get into your report about how to begin reopening the country, I wanna set some expectations here. Many of us are living under lockdown right now. We remember what normalcy is like. And I think the expectation for many of us is that when lockdown ends, normalcy is what returns. Are we going back to normal anytime soon? Does the status quo snap back into place?
2: I don't think there's going to be a binary point in time when we just return to what we were doing. I think world history is permanently altered by this episode. I don't think you can have an episode of this magnitude and not have implications that are going to be potentially quite profound that we don't fully understand yet, including public health implications. There's going to be public health implications for these these severe lockdowns. There's going to be people who didn't get prenatal care or didn't uh, didn't seek health care and ended up having uh, medical sequelae for that. But I think also, as long as this pathogen is circulating in the background, and we don't have a vaccine for it, and we don't have very effective therapeutics, and I don't think we're going to have those things by the fall, and we may not have them this year, this is going to alter the way we uh, live and do business. Um, You know, some of it's going to be subtle. You'll see businesses advertising deep cleanings uh, in between, you know, Uber rides or on airplanes. People aren't going to shake hands as much anymore. I think wearing masks in public is going to become more fashionable in Western societies, You might see airports using ultraviolet light in shared spaces, walkways, things like that. So some of it will be subtle and some of it will get dividends for in the form of maybe lessened flu seasons or just, you know, reduced transmission of of illnesses generally. Some of it's going to be more profound. I don't think the marginal customer for a stadium or a concert or a cruise ship, I don't think they're coming back um, soon. I think people are gonna be more circumspect about travel, particularly international travel. Businesses are gonna be more circumspect about bringing together large groups of people. So you're gonna see a change in the way we live and the way we do business. And the question is, can we get back to our normal economic activity or, or our normal level of economic activity with, with that kind of a sort of profound, pervasive change in the way we we operate? And it may be hard. I talked about an 80% economy if this continues to circulate in the fall and you have outbreaks. Because in, in the U.S., the consumer, you know, really drives the economy. And in, in China, if you look what happened in China, the manufacturing sector bounced back, but the Chinese consumer still hasn't returned. If you see what people are doing in China, they're going to work and then they're going home. If we have a situation where business bounces back, but consumers sit, sit out or they're reluctant to uh, re-engage in the same way that they were engaged in the economy before... We're a very consumer-led economy, and I think that's going to be a, a pervasive drag. Your plan divides the coming months into
3: four phases, and then it establishes triggers for states to move from one phase into the next. Can
2: you, To just start into it, can you give me a high-level overview of those four phases? Well, let me tell you what. Phase one is the phase we're in right now, the population-based mitigation. Um, we want to We want to move into phase two, which is starting to reopen America. What we tried to do with the report was create really identifiable milestones and then tie policy decisions around those milestones. And we did that because we want to give people something to shoot at. We wanted to give very sort of clear identifiable objectives so people can debate whether those are right or wrong. I think, you know, if we had laid out sort of broad, broad objectives that it was hard to put granular details around and metrics around, I don't think it would have been as useful. So one of the the very clear milestones that we identify is we say, 14 days after you have a sustained reduction in new cases, you can start to reopen the economy. You can start to lift stay-at-home orders and, and allow certain businesses to go back to work in sort of a staggered fashion while still implementing certain um, certain restrictions. And commensurate with that, you also need to have the capacity to treat everyone. So you need to make sure your healthcare system is rebounded and has sufficient capacity And you also need the capacity to test everyone. So you need to have the ability to do point of care testing in the community and really test everyone who may present with symptoms of coronavirus, which we don't have the capacity to do right now. So those were the three milestones that we identified at when you would make a decision to reopen the economy.
3: So I wanna go into a part of phase one here because I think people understand the part of phase one that they have to do, social distancing, um, staying at home. But something you talk about in phase one is that we need to increase testing capacity and we need to ensure the health system has the capacity to safely treat uh, COVID-19 patients and others who need care. I mean, this is when, when you talk about that flattening the curve, this is uh, what people call raising the line or raising the bar, right? Raising the amount of testing and healthcare we can actually offer. Are we doing enough on that right now in states like California and New York and Washington and others that are in intense lockdown? Is the huge sacrifice being made by the people locking down, sacrificing income and wages and social life, is that being matched by a true mobilization on the healthcare supply side?
2: We're doing a lot to increase testing capacity, but we're gonna hit an upper limit. So let me back up. Getting from 100,000 tests to a million tests is gonna be easier, um, a lot easier than getting from a million tests to 1.5 million tests. And the reason I say that is because what we did up until this date is we took platforms that existed labs that were out there LabCorp core and quest academic labs and we got them in the game we stood them up so now their vast platforms are available for coronavirus testing and that's why we've been able to increase testing we're probably by the end of this week at a million tests a week in terms of capacity next week we'll build on that but getting to the point where you have two three million test capacity per week which is probably where you need to be initially as you do this transition that's going to be very hard because we've tapped out the available platforms and now we're dependent upon creating new platforms and new supply chains to fuel those platforms. And that's going to be very hard. We're going to hit an upper limit and we're probably approaching that right now in terms of what the spare capacity is in the country. And now it's going to be a question of how fast can Abbott and BD and other companies build new testing platforms and how fast can LabCorp and Quest scale up new labs that didn't exist before. And that's a harder... That's a harder exercise. And so where do we need to be as we do this transition? You know, one benchmark would just would be to say, basically everyone who presents to a primary care doctor for whatever reason should get swabbed for coronavirus. That wouldn't be an absurd objective. If you want to do really widespread screening so that you can capture not just symptomatic people, but asymptomatic people, at least initially for a period of time, just swab everyone. Just like a child goes into a pediatrician's office and if their ear hurts, they get a, a strep test. If their nose is running, they get a strep test. If their throat hurts, if they, they get a strep test. And if they're lethargic in school, they get a strep test. You could think of coronavirus at least initially the same way. You want to swab very liberally and report the results so that you can detect small outbreaks and do those case-based interventions, isolate individual people who, ha- who are infectious rather than try to do what we're doing now, isolate entire populations. So... Will we get there? I don't think we're going to get there by May. I think that we're still going to be under testing relative to what is the optimal from a public health standpoint. I think we have the ability to get there by September, but we need to be doing um, a lot of things right now, really investing in that. Congress is going to need to ultimately act.
3: I want to get very wonky and technical on the testing question here, because I've been looking at every one of the plans people have released for how to get the economy back up and running. Your plan, the Center for American Progress plan, the Harvard-Safra Center plan, Paul Romer's plan for mass testing, The Economist. And what I see in there uh, are, are two things. I want to come back later to IT-based uh, contact tracing. But, but, but here on testing is massive scaled-up testing. You talk about a couple million a week. Some of those plans talk about a couple million a day. Romer's plan talks about 22 million a day. And so a huge question in all of this seems to me to be, what are the constraints on how rapidly we can build up testing what 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 don't we have that we need to have is there a resource material constraint is it just getting bodies out there like what keeps us from going to 5 million tests a day in 2 months why why is that an
2: is that an unrealistic goal and if so what makes it unrealistic well the the resource constraint that we're going to bump up against right now so what we did up until now as i mentioned was sort of get labs that were there into the game we stood them up we got them working on coronavirus tests now we're going to be at a constraint in terms of not having available platforms we're going to have to build more machines to actually run the tests if we want to get to the levels you're talking about in some cases we're going to, have to build more of those little toaster sized boxes that abbott makes that they put in doctor's offices that they use for flu swabbing and strep testing And now we're using for coronavirus testing. So building that hardware takes time. Deploying that hardware takes time, especially into places where it's not currently deployed. And then the other limiting factor is the testing supply chain. It's not the the machines that we might not be able to build. We're not going to have enough reagents. We're not going to have enough plastic tips to to pipette samples from one well to another. We're not going to have enough plastic cartridges to put the samples in. We're actually running short of swabs to to swab people's noses. So it's all the low margin commodity products in the testing supply chain that we're now having problems obtaining. And, it you know, it's a lesson learned that if you look at any complicated supply chain, and I learned this from when I was at FDA, if you think about where the vulnerable vulnerability is in your supply chain, where the weak points are, where things go into shortage, it's never the high margin product. Because a high margin product has a good manufacturer who's invested in manufacturing, who has invested in continuity of business decisions to make sure they never go down because they're selling an expensive machine they're selling a high margin product it's always the commodity product the low margin product because that's always a manufacturer that's probably offshore it's probably one or two manufacturers it's been consolidated the manufacturing because it's low margin the business and um, they can't scale up because they've underinvested in their manufacturing for many years and so if you're making pipette tips you know you're not you don't have a lot of residual manufacturing capacity you don't have a state of the art plant necessarily and so it's hard to scale it up. That's the weak link in the supply chain. That's why I said at the outset, thinking about stockpiling these things, we never envisioned being in shortage of of swabs for nasopharyngeal swabs or reagents. In fact, that's what's happening now.
3: And is this something where if we invoked and aggressively mobilized against the Defense Production Act, we could do more? I mean, I am obviously not a manufacturing expert, but the folks who make Q-tips potentially could be mobilized into making swabs uh apple could help make the little toaster things i I don't know what you need to do to get reagent i recognize what i'm saying is likely going to sound very crude but is this a situation where the resources exist and they need to be uh, directed and mobilized through some kind of central planning or is this something where even if you put into play that level of aggressive direction you still couldn't invent
2: the reagent that you need to make this work Yeah, I don't know how much you can um, just create new manufacturing for some of these commodity products because sometimes there's materials that go into them as starting materials and those in fact are the weak link in the supply chain. So even if you had extra manufacturing, so for example, with N95 masks, you can build a plant to make masks, but the actual ingredient, the, the, the product that goes into making those masks is manufactured outside the US would be hard to scale a new manufacturing for that. And that's what's in in shortage right now. So it's some of the starting ingredients. And I don't know where that comes into play with the with the testing supply chain. With respect to the the point of care tests that I think we're gonna need that are made by companies like Abbott and, and BD, Beck and Dickinson, those are a little bit different in that those companies control their entire supply chain end to end. So they, they don't just make the high margin product, they make everything that's used in the performance of that test. So they make their own um, swabs, their own pipette tips, their own cartridges, and they make the toaster size box. So that's a supply chain that could be scaled a little more easily because they control it. So I think that we're going to be able to scale capacity. And that's why I think some of the swing capacity now and some of the necessary capacity is going to be those point-of-care tests. Right now, the only one that's approved, there's actually two, Cepheid's Gene Expert, which isn't a true point-of-care test in that it's not really in doctor's offices. It's usually in community hospitals and maybe large medical practices. But the Abbott is a truly point-of-care test. That's in 18,000 doctor's offices. BD makes a similar um, machine, that they use for flu testing as well, and I think strep throat testing also. They're not approved yet, but I would suspect that they're going to be on the market within you know the next month or so. Um, that's going to make a big difference too. And in trying to scale those systems, having those companies make more, whether or not you took over a facility and tried to convert it to making those boxes, I'm not sure that's going to be more efficient than just um, having those companies ramp up their own manufacturing, which is in fact what they're doing. So I want to talk about the other
3: side of what in your plan is called the, the comprehensive COVID-19 surveillance system. So on the one hand, you have the widespread and rapid testing. We've talked a bit about what we need there and what the difficulties are there. But then there's what you call the National Sentinel Surveillance System. Um, and this is a way you can track the background rate of infection. It's a way you can do contact tracing. There's a lot of discussion about whether or not you can do IT-based contact tracing where people download an app, which seems to be happening at least to some degree in Taiwan. This seems to mean to be another one of these things where if you can get it at scale, it really helps. But on the other hand, the idea that every American is going to download an app that lets the government or some company or someone trace who they've been near and who they've touched and um, you know they have to scan in a QR code when they walk into a building, that's a very big cultural shift and it goes quite against some of uh, where we where we tend to be in this country and we're not operating in a moment of high political trust or high trust in corporations. So can you talk a bit
2: about what that might look like and what you think the obstacles to getting there might be? Well, I don't think we're going to get to that that kind of um, an app. I don't think that we would accept that in the, in, the, in the United States. I think there'd be a lot of privacy concerns and I don't think we should be doing that. And so the idea of having some kind of app that would um, geo-track people and tell you when you've been in contact with someone or, or report when you've been in contact with someone who had coronavirus as a way to do contact tracing. Um, I don't think we should be doing that. They're, they're, they're experimenting with things like that. in some countries South Korea had something similar to that. I think where technology could be very helpful, though, and where we have to have a very robust debate is when it comes to case based uh, interventions and self isolation. So if we, if we have the system we need and we have very robust screening in the community and we end up identifying people when they have mild disease or asymptomatic disease for the period of time that they're infectious, what do we do? What do we ask them to do? We can ask them to voluntarily self isolate or we can enforce that self-isolation. Um, and the question is, are we gonna go towards enforcing the self-isolation? Now, in fact, we've already done that with coronavirus. With the early cases, we quarantine people and we enforce self-isolation. We actually quarantine some individuals on military bases. With uh, multidrug-resistant tuberculosis or measles, we oftentimes require self-isolation and we enforce it. We enforce it with public health officials. Sometimes we enforce it with police. And so in this setting, are we going to do that I think we should. I think we should be asking people to self-isolate and enforcing it. But are we going to be using tools to enforce that self-isolation as opposed to public health workers to make it more efficient? So basically text messaging people every day and saying, are you home? That would be the most, least invasive or requiring them to download an app and tracking their phone to make sure they haven't physically separated from their phone. Obviously, they could go out and leave their phone home, but these are layers of uh layers of protection. You can do it with video chat, things like that to make sure people are are adhering to a self-isolation. We have to have that debate because even that level of case-based interventions seems to uh, make some people concerned. Uh, and I think if we're not going to you know, be at a point where we can ask people to self-isolate and do something to help supervise that to make sure that they actually adhere, we're going to have to then accept that we're going to have larger outbreaks than we might otherwise have. And it's going to be harder to control this Infection because simply asking for voluntary compliance with self isolations may not be enough. Now, the flip side of this, though, is that you don't want to impose restrictions that alienate individuals or uh, make people concerned about their privacy. Because if you do, then what's going to happen is you're going to discourage people from going out and getting tested and self identifying when they have coronavirus. And that's the last thing you want. You want people to be encouraged to get tested and identified and diagnosed with coronavirus. So we need to balance whatever we impose against not discouraging people from actually getting tested. And where that line is, that's a debate we need to have. We haven't had it yet. When people are identified as being positive with coronavirus, what do we ask them to do? Ultimately, this decision is going to be up to mayors and governors. But I think that the way this has been debated in in sort of the public discourse, you know, people go right to these sort of South Korea style apps where they track every movement and they don't recognize that this technology that fulfills a purpose that's far away from that level of surveillance and intrusiveness, which I don't think we should ever get to. But that does implement some kind of requirement on individuals to take responsibility when they're infectious to not go into contact with you know, strangers, other people, the public at large.
3: Well, can you talk a bit then about when you say we need to massively scale contact tracing, what does that look like?
2: It's it's a lot of things, but but at a basic level, it's what states like Massachusetts are doing right now, where they're hiring 1,000 public health workers to do contact tracing so that when they turn over positive cases, when they identify people with infection, they'll interview them, they'll um, talk to them about who they might have been in contact with, they'll trace down those individuals, they'll ask them if they have signs or symptoms of coronavirus, they may ask them to get tested. Some of them they may ask to self-isolate for a period of time, depending on the level of exposure and the likelihood that they could have could be infected. Um, or at least self-isolate until they get back a negative test. That's the traditional sort of bread and butter, boots on the ground work of public health. We don't have the capacity right now. We've underinvested in our public health infrastructure for years. We don't have the capacity to do that at scale. So very quickly, if there's a large outbreak in a city, we'll overwhelm the capacity of any city's public health infrastructure to do that at scale. I'm talking about if you have more than like thousands of cases, you're going to overwhelm the system for sure. So we need to build that out, recognizing that we're probably going to need more capacity because this is a virus that we're we're going to have to contend with some reasonably sized outbreaks. Now, you can use technology, as I mentioned, with respect to the case based interventions and the self-isolation to augment some of that. But you can't use it. You can't use technology to augment all of it. Ultimately, you need people doing this work.
4: Support for the gray area comes from Shopify.
0: State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
2: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out.
3: That brings us to the triggers for moving to phase two. And I want to just go through these quickly because I want to ask you some questions about phase two. So if there's a sustained reduction in cases for at least 14 days in a state, the hospitals can safely treat all patients requiring hospitalization. State is able to test all people with COVID-19 symptoms. And the state is able to conduct active monitoring of confirmed cases in their contacts. You can go to reopening state by state. And Tell me what you think will reopen when we go state by state, because I don't think you mean that uh, you can have an NBA game uh, again. So if you if you manage to get to phase two,
2: what kind of economy are we looking at? What is what is opened and what can we not still do? Yeah, I think it's going to be we're going to be entering this in May. We're going to be starting to make these decisions in May and through June. I think it's going to be a gradual reintroduction of activity. You'll probably lift the stay at home orders, but you'll tell people if you go out, you have to wear a mask for a period of time. You'll allow certain businesses to go back to work first, but you'll tell businesses that they have to put certain restrictions in place to try to reduce um, the number of people who ag- who congregate together. So reduce the risk that, so that you can spread infection in the workplace, basically maintain some social distancing in the workplace. There'll be increased local ordinances on food handlers, temperature text checks on food handlers, tables have to be spaced apart. You can't have more than 75% your fire, of your fire capacity in certain businesses. They'll limit the number of people that can be indoors. Things like that to just try to reduce human-to-human interaction as much as possible while having a functioning economy and allowing people to re-engage in normal activity. And you'll slowly introduce that. What's going to be last to be introduced? It's going to be places where a lot of people crowd indoors for purely entertainment purposes. So bars, venues, concerts, um, clubs, things like that, probably are going to be the last to open up. Now, against this backdrop, we're going to be entering summer when people preferentially want to be outside anyway. So you'll try to do whatever you can to move as much of that activity into outside venues rather than indoor venues where there's you know slightly less risk of transmission It's really crowding people together inside that creates the biggest risk for transmission. I think we're talking here about some of the population and
3: not all of it. In phase two, even in a phase three that doesn't yet have a vaccine, my mother is in her 70s and has some lung damage. My father is in his 70s and he's immunocompromised. Do they get to go out? What kind of normalcy returns for them, if any? Or are they in a position of essentially self-isolation until there's a vaccine?
2: Well, there's a difference between what does the government require you to do, what do they ask you to do, and what do you choose to do? I think that there might be sort of guidance that people who, who um, have certain conditions are in a vulnerable position with respect to this virus for a longer period of time try to avoid going out. Um, It might not be enforced. They're not going to be pulling people's licenses in the street and checking your age and where you're going to make sure you're out for a legitimate purpose. But there might be some strong recommendations that certain individuals delay their reintroduction, if you will. But I think the bigger question is, what do people choose to do? And I think that there's going to be large groups of people that choose to do things very differently so long as this virus is continuing to circulate, even at low levels. Um, But certainly, so long as we're continuing to see outbreaks in American and international cities, which I think we're going to see through the fall and the winter, if we don't have a really strong, significant technological solution to this in the form of a drug that is really a game changer, which, you know, I suspect we're not going to have this season. We're not going to have this fall and this winter is going to take a little longer to get that. And I think people who are older, vulnerable are going to make decisions to limit their activity. And that's why I talk about the 80% economy. I think there's certain things that people don't do and certain things that don't come back. I mean, just talking to my own parents, um, you know, they're talking that way about trying to be a little bit more circumspect about what they do heading into the fall. I know a lot of people that are canceling vacations or making different decisions about the fall in anticipation that there's probably going to be still, still some further risk from this. We don't remember really. I mean, not, very few of us alive today live through a time when, there were polio outbreaks in the summer but when you talk to your parents or people who lived through that they talk about summer camps being closed pools being closed kids didn't go out we you know if you look back at the history of smallpox and um, diphtheria when when infectious diseases were became epidemic in cities it changed city life things closed people didn't do things we've never lived through a period like that with a highly infectious disease that transmitted through you know normal interactions or could be transmitted on a surface on a subway in a city that was deadly enough to invoke realistic fear and this one's deadly enough to invoke realistic fear when you have a pathogen like this circulating it's going to impact city life particularly in urban centers that's been the history of pathogens like this we just haven't had to deal with one and when those came, when they came along, we were able to vanquish them with technology. Now we're going to be able to vanquish this with technology. I'm very confident of that. The question is the time frame.
3: I want to hold though on the what you just said here and try to face its emotional cost a little bit more frontally. Um, what you're saying is that for people who are especially vulnerable, and that is a lot of people, a lot of older people, a lot of people with uh, some kind of pre-existing compromised immune system. This is going to be a rough year. It's going to be a year where you don't get to have normal, even when other people maybe are getting a lot closer to that, or at least don't get to have it safely. And I, I don't know that I don't know that any of us are totally prepared for that, right? I mean, it's only April. If people are going to have to be following this through the fall, even as even as the people they love are starting to go out in a way that makes them more of a danger to them, right? I think about this myself that. If social distancing is lifted because San Francisco where I live or California where I live has managed to make it to phase two, in a way, it becomes more dangerous for me to then go see my parents because I've been in contact with more people. Uh, maybe I've been going back to work or I've been whatever it might be. And in a, in a perverse way, as the rest of the country becomes less isolated again, the people who bear the brunt of this in terms of their vulnerability might become yet more isolated because the folks who are being so careful before and so posed lower risk to them pose a higher risk now, particularly in these, in these urban areas that's just going to be a very tough way for people to live or am i missing some part of it
2: no i think that i think that there's going to be more trepidation about what we do that the things that could really tip that balance is if again the t- technology but also a very aggressive surveillance system if you have a surveillance system in place and surveillance is probably the wrong word if you have a health monitoring system and a testing regime where well, you know that you're testing so many people on a daily basis for Um, coronavirus that you're likely to surface an outbreak when it's only hundreds of cases and before it becomes thousands and thousands of cases. I think if you can demonstrate that to people, that's going to inspire a lot of confidence and people will feel fairly comfortable to go, to go out again. Because if you're living in a city like New York of nine million people and your testing regime is going to, is, is sensitive enough to pick up outbreaks of, you know, 500 people your absolute risk of actually contracting, it's fairly low. You know, you're, you're in a city of 9 million people. What's the likelihood that you're gonna come into contact with the 400 who have coronavirus and then come into contact with them in a way that you can actually get the virus? Pretty low. But if you don't have that in place and you're walking around and you recognize that your risk can be quite high and nobody knows it, that's an uncomfortable position. So, you know, February 20th in New York City, and I can look at my calendar right now and see what I was doing in New York City that those days, we were at a lot of risk of coronavirus. We just didn't know it. And so if that's the situation in perpetuity, yeah, that's gonna that's gonna create a lot of um fear and uncertainty. And I think people are gonna be more reluctant to go out now. That said, we should be able to get to the sort of state that I described where we have very broad screening in place where people can go and get tested very easily, where we're doing what you what you refer to as sentinel surveillance, which is basically testing a representative sample of people to try to capture asymptomatic and mildly symptomatic spread before small outbreaks become big outbreaks. We can do all that, but it takes a lot of planning. It's going to require the, you know, the administration working together with Congress and some of it has to be done in legislation. Some of it can be done through regulatory changes, but we really need to have sort of a comprehensive plan. That's the second report we put out this week where we tried to outline in a very long report, what are the detailed steps that you need to implement to try to get to a very broad testing regime and a health monitoring regime. Um, and so we try to outline what, what we think needs to happen there as well, the same authors on both papers.
3: You mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago the questions of vaccines or therapeutics. Uh, phase three, which is a much more normal phase of life, works off of that. So I know you've talked a bit about the bets we need to make on, on, on medications. Just let's start here. Why don't you give me your survey of where you think we are and what you think is plausible in terms of therapeutics, let's say, by
2: the end of the year? So by the end of the year, we're not going to have a vaccine. I think a base case, we need to figure that a vaccine may be two years away. Hopefully we can get it sooner than that. But I think we need to work off of a assumption that we're not going to get it sooner than that. And so we're going to have to live with coronavirus for a couple of years. And we have need other technology. If you look at what could be available by the fall, It's really a small subset of drugs. And I would be focusing attention and resources on that small subset and really trying to work aggressively with those manufacturers to try to pull those products through the development process and turn over the data cards that you're gonna need to turn over to determine whether or not they're safe and effective, whether or not they're gonna have an impact on this disease. And so what are those drugs? One is remdesivir from Gilead, which many people have probably heard about. It's an antiviral drug. It, It inhibits viral replication. It's pretty far along. There's data available right now that, you know, suggests that it's active. Um, A lot of doctors are using it. They believe that it's active. It's probably going to be more effective if used earlier in the course of the disease rather than late. The um, The other products are the therapeutic antibodies. So there's four companies making these, Veer Biotechnology, Regeneron, Amgen, and Lilly. These are basically biotech manufactured antibodies, the same kind of antibody your body would produce if it's exposed to the virus, and that antibody, your body would use that antibody to fight the virus if you're exposed again. There's two ways to get those antibodies. One is to take them off someone who's been infected. Another way is to actually manufacture it at scale using the tools of biotechnology. And that's, in fact, what these companies are trying to do. That's an attractive product for a number of reasons. First of all, it can be used as a treatment early in disease. It's probably less effective later in disease because after you have a lot of virus on board, it's hard to give enough antibodies to mop it all up. But it can also be used as a prophylaxis, as a bridge to a vaccine, where you might be able to give a monthly injection or a bi-monthly injection and basically vaccinate people, be able to give them something that would prevent them from getting infections. So you can use that in your frontline healthcare workers, You can use it in TSA agents or food handlers who are coming into contact with a lot of people and are more likely to get infected and then spread the infection. You can use it um, in contacts, close contacts. So when someone's sick, you identify who they're in contact with and you give them the injection right away to prevent them from getting sick. So that could be a very attractive drug. The combination could be very effective. If you can have both of those by the fall, a treatment to help people who are infected and show up in the emergency room and in an antibody that can help prevent infection in those who are exposed, that's a pretty potent combination. Now, the, the biggest obstacle, in addition to doing the trials to figure out if they work, if they're safe and effective, is going to be manufacturing them at scale. That's something we can solve for right now. We should be working on how we're going to make investments to help these companies scale up manufacturing and get to you know large commercial scale manufacturing in time for the fall, so that if one of them does work, we're able to turn on a spigot quickly and produce not hundreds of thousands of doses, but millions of doses a month. That's the kind of position you want to be in. There was money set aside in a recent Senate bill, the CARES Act, a Senate and House bill um, the president signed that actually set aside upwards of $10 billion to do just this. But um, that needs to be implemented. The companies need to be aware of it and pursue those opportunities. You need the agencies working to stand that up, so that all has to happen. It's not hasn't happened yet, um, but you know we have time to do that. But that's the kind of thing I think we should be focused on right now.
3: You talk also in phase three about serological surveys to determine population immunity. I've seen conflicting reports on whether people who have gotten coronavirus are immune, and I recognize there is some amount here that we simply don't know. But what is your best guess on that? If we had that serological testing. Would it even matter because people are actually immune or would it not matter much because a substantial portion can get reinfected?
2: Well, I think it's both of those things. I think that there is immunity here. You're, you know, People who are infected most develop it's, um, a, a robust antibody response. This is a highly immunogenic virus. Your body sees it as foreign and develops a lot of antibodies. And that's in part what's getting people sick is the revved up immune response to the virus. And so you develop antibodies, that immunity probably lasts six months to a year. The antibodies decline. You might have some residual immunity. You might have some, what we call, you know, cell based immunity, um, where where if you're re challenged with the virus in two or three years, you might get sick again. Um, but the illness you'd get the second time wouldn't be as severe. There is a cohort of people, about a third, based on some very early data that we're getting out of China now, a study that came out this week that suggests that a percentage of people and maybe up to 30% don't really develop a robust antibody response. We don't know why. It tends to be younger people. And so that can potentially partially explain, this is pure speculation, but explain maybe why younger people also don't seem to get sick from this virus. Maybe they're not mounting a very vigorous immune response and so that the the inflammatory response from the immune system isn't something that is happening in them and that's why they're not having the same bad outcomes that uh, middle-aged people and older people who do mount a very vigorous immune response and develop a lot of antibodies do. Pure speculation, we don't know. It's one study and we need to figure it out. Um, but the b- bigger issue also is that once we do this serological testing, and the serological testing is important, it's important to understand where the virus has been, who's been exposed. It could be important for decisions about return to work in certain professions where there's gonna be high exposure rate like police officers or EMT workers or, or, or doctors and nurses. But by and large, what we're going to find is that a very small percentage of the population has actually been exposed to this virus. If you talk to the modelers and the experts in the United States, they say anywhere from one to five percent of people probably have been exposed to this virus already. And if you look at the data coming out of Europe, where they're already using serology. It's, again, in the sort of five percent range when you look across Europe. Some some countries are higher, like Italy, but most of the countries are in the five percent range. So the idea that there's 30 or 40% of the population has had this virus and that cold or that illness you had in January or February, that you didn't know what it was, probably was coronavirus. I think that's gonna turn out not to be the case. It's gonna turn out to be a small percentage of the population, certainly in the single digits, that have any level of antibodies from either being asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic or having it knowing they had it. And it's not gonna be enough to create um, herd immunity, enough people who have immunity that this can no longer spread. But it's also not going to be enough to have this pool of people that can just return to work.
3: One of the things that worries me going forward is it has been hard enough to get states into phase one and to try to do phase one well. Not every state is there, even as we speak. And then if you move into phase two, I think there's going to be a lot of relief. But something that is planned for in your proposal But they were also seeing in other places like Singapore, which had a very effective response, but has now had to go back into lockdown where you can't have people over and they're going back into a very intense freeze is that you might have to bounce back and forth between phase one and phase two for a while and the political difficulty of getting people to accept that once they have lifted it, the political difficulty of going backwards, um, going all the way up, I think, to the president who clearly wants to get out of phase one as quickly as possible and is not going to be excited in an election year about reestablishing it. It seems that the obstacles to being able to dance back and forth are, are, are very high. But if we don't, we could end up back in a very, very difficult situation, partly given what you just said about the absence of likely herd immunity. I'm curious, given that your proposal talks about this possible need to go back, how you
2: think about the obstacles to to doing so? I think there will be political obstacles, not just at a national level, but at a local level as well. But you know, ultimately, these decisions are going to be made by mayors and governors. And even that's going to be a hard decision because you want to be the city that shuts down activity while the rest of the country is humming. And it's going to be in the best interest of every other part of the country that you do that, but it's not going to be in your best interest. And if you look at the history of this outbreak and this epidemic, Seattle should have taken more aggressive steps earlier. Now, it ended up that the um, the um epidemic in Seattle wasn't as large as we we, we thought it might be because... Seattle probably was a single large cluster that was expanding as opposed to multiple introductions with multiple clusters. So in some way, we dodged the worst outcome there. But they were very slow to take aggressive steps. They they kept activity humming along far longer than they should have. And that would have been the first city to really start to shut down economic activity. And you saw a reluctance to do it. So I think it's going to be a challenge when you have outbreaks in cities. At what point do cities, you know, pull the trigger and start to shut down economic activity and start to impose some of the population-based mitigation, not just to prevent spread in their cities, but also prevent spread more broadly in the United States? It's going to be in the country's interest that when there are outbreaks, local officials take aggressive actions. It's not going to always be that apparent to local officials that they should step aggressively forward if they think that there might be things that they can do that are more limited. So this is going to be hard, just not, not just at a national level, and national decision-making, where I think the decisions aren't going to get made. But I'm more worried about the local decision-making and people being reluctant to take steps that, you know, could serve the national interests well, but maybe serve their local interests not quite as well.
3: Scott Gottlieb, thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Scott Gottlieb for being here. Uh, If you do want to learn more, hear more about the plans, I have two quick recommendations for you. I mentioned at the top this piece I've written, which is not just about the AI plan, but also the Center for American Progress's plan, the Harvard-Saffer Center for Ethics uh, plan or proposal, and Paul Romer, who's a Nobel Prize-winning economist, his plan. Um, You can find that in show notes or at Vox. Uh, The headline is, I've read the plans to reopen the economy. They're scary. Um, They are scary. And particularly when you begin thinking about... The mass surveillance or mass testing regimes that they are beginning to consider. Maybe we need them. Um, The future may just be scary here. And then also on the weeds this week, Matt Iglesias and I dive into these plans and try to think through some of their assumptions uh, more deeply. So you can download that wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, As always, thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing the Ezra Klein Shows of Vox Media podcast production.